Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to season 3 of Garden Better, the podcast from Better Homes and Gardens magazine. I'm Adam Woodhams and with me is Jenny Dillon. Hi, Adam. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks, Jen. Good. Hey, we're both horticulturists and gardeners, and in every episode, we'll be dishing the dirt on all things gardening, guiding you through the season, and taking a look at what's hot and what's not. But most importantly, how you can keep things thriving in your own little patch of paradise. Okay, Adam. So what are we going to talk about today? Today, Jen, we have got the thing that should be first and foremost in everybody's minds, spring blooms. Then we're going to have a look at garden pollinators. And one of those little secrets that many, many people aren't aware of, the native bees. Ah, yes. No, well, there's a couple of people I know who know a lot about them. Mm, Well, we've found one of them to come in and talk to us. That's going to be great fun. And don't miss out on Milton Black's Gardening by the Moon segment. But first off, spring blooms. Well, when we think spring, what's one of the first things that springs to mind, Jen? Well, I guess it's these spring bulbs that are coming out. Everyone's been waiting since about April for them, haven't they? they, I I still reckon they are one of the most fun surprise packages you can possibly ever do anything with in the garden. Yeah, you know, but it's interesting how you can plant them. I mean, I really like them when people plant them randomly so they come up like a wildflower garden. A lot of people plant them en masse, especially display gardens and parks and things, and they do look impressive. But you tend to see just the colour rather than the flower. Mm. And uh, I, I, I'm a big fan of the naturalised, as you said, the ones that get you that natural look. And those those bulbs, those spring flowering bulbs that do naturalise well in the garden, like the daffodils and the jonquils. And I think they're absolutely fantastic. But there's a lot more to the spring flowering garden than just the bulbs, aren't there? There's a lot of really cool stuff out there that can be doing some wonderful things in people's gardens. Oh, look, I'm just, you know, once you see the bulbs coming through, and they are coming through now, they just look gorgeous. But it just makes you really excited about all the other things that are going to be happening. Like, for example, you go from the, the bulbs that are, you know, covering the ground and you look up and the trees are coming out. Oh, the things that are the, the doing things above your head are just incredible. And I think this is one of the amazing things about Australia, too, because the continent is so vast. Spring is like this rolling wave that just moves its way down the country. So, and I remember many, many years ago, I was working on um, Australia's Best Backyard for Better Homes and Gardens TV, and we were judging the best garden around the country, and it happened to be in the early days of spring. And I was, I was zipping all around the country looking at different gardens, and you'd, you'd be looking at somewhere up on northern New South Wales, and spring would be on its last legs, and then you'd be down in Tasmania a couple of days later. And it's and, just and, popping and, up. And the bulbs are only just coming up. So it's, it's such an amazing... Amazing rolling display, but you are you are very right. Some of that stuff that goes on above your head, like the the beautiful dogwoods, you know, they're they're an incredible flowering display, absolutely amazing. But um, I mean, I think one of the the beautiful ones. I'm still I'm still an old time tragic with this is the azaleas. You know that I think. Are that, you? Yeah. <laughs> I'd never put you down for an azalea man. I, look, I grew up in a house with a 
big bank of azaleas in the backyard and I just just is there anything comparable to a big azalea bush that's just totally covered from top to bottom in those no. those incredible candy colours. You know, I don't think there is. And the funny thing is over the past decade or so, I think they've kind of gone out of fashion. People aren't planting them anymore. You know, and the same with um, gardenias. Mm. And I think especially with um, modern housing, contemporary housing now, they look fabulous because they are compact and then just they don't sort of make a, a fuss. And then mm. just in springtime they come out and they're just fantastic and then they go away again. Yeah, well, people, I think, started to have a lot of pest problems with azaleas, particularly in, in the zones like Sydney, that there was a whole lot of things like the uh, the lace bugs started to be mm-hmm. a problem and, and that did cause many issues. But there are some good varieties out there now, particularly there's some varieties that will tolerate full sun because typically azaleas have always been a very much a shade-loving Shade, plant. Yeah. So there are some full sun varieties. But uh, the natives often get overlooked as being a spring bloomer. You know, the, not in my garden. Not in your garden? No. Mm, no I'm just in, anticipating when my clematis comes out. You can see the buds there. They just mm. look fabulous. That's the native um, clematis. The little it's native really one, beautiful. which is just those beautiful little starry flowers. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're absolutely gorgeous. And, you know, you get introduced to spring when the Hardenbergia comes out. You know, that's the native wisteria. Yes, yes. And it's sometimes called the, the Solder's Happy Wanderers. They're, yes. Yes, that little, little mm. incredibly colourful blooms, the beautiful and, iridescent purples. Yeah. And I th- iridescent is the word. It mm. really, really, really does glow. But I think um, for me, spring always is the wattle. Yes, yeah, it's it's, and that that can vary in some regions of the country too. I know up in up in the subtropics, a lot of them happen more winterish. So, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So you do get those different regional ones, and there's the classics too, like the deciduous magnolias. They are just. My dad always used to say that was always the, the harbinger of, of spring was the, the magnolias. You know, mm. they'd, they'd start flowering just before spring really starts happening. Mm. And then he'd always add, he always had a bit of a cynical approach to gardening. And he said it was also, it would also tell you when the westerly winds were going to start just in time to smash every single flower <laughs> off the magnolias. <laughs> oh, God. I went to a cherry blossom festival the other day and I'm sure the winds had gone through that because it was looking a bit sad. Yeah. <laughs> That's that. I, I, I would absolutely love to go to Japan and do the cherry blossom thing, but I just totally live in fear of it being the one year where the cherry blossoms decided to get completely hammered by a windstorm or something. Because can you, can you imagine scheduling a trip like that a year out and then you arrive there and then there's no blooms because they either haven't come out or they've all been knocked off by a wind or something like you that? You know what? I think somehow they do manage to survive that because a lot of the, the cherry blossom trees in Japan are painted by lakes or rivers and there's always a lot of air movement. Mm. Around where you have that water, and I think that you know you do get petals just floating through the air. It's just gorgeous. So you've got them on the trees and in the air, and then settling on the ground. Mm, yes, true. Look, I might, I might try it one day, one of these days. But a, a lot of people forget too that the the many of the fruit trees, like everything from apple trees through to uh, peaches and plums and nectarines and all that sort of stuff, they put on a beautiful spring flowering display. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one of their their big bonuses. You know, you don't just get the fruit; you also get some some wonderful spring flowers. What are a few others that you you like that are? Well, in terms of fruit, I like a, a fruit tree that doesn't produce much in the way of fruit, and that's <laughs> <laughs> that's the ornamental pear. I think it's one of the most glorious oh, yes. urban trees that you could have. Yes. They you know they're very tall and elegant. They have gorgeous blossoms, mm. and then they come out with these beautiful soft green leaves that 
just the autumn colours that it finally produces are just stunning. Yeah, those those true seasonal changes that you get yeah. from them are just incredible. But and they're really, really hardy plants. They just tolerate every single abuse that the city can throw at them. Mm, it, well, that's that's true. That is one of the advantages too of a lot of the uh, the deciduous trees, those particularly spring flowering ones. Um, because they lose their leaves, they can tolerate some of the uh, polluted environments a lot better because they're they're replenishing their leaves every year, so they're not they're not tolerating damage for a longer period of time. But what about wisteria? And that's that's got to be one of the the most spectacular spring flowering plants, even though it can be very very ephemeral. It can it can come and go very quickly. It goes very very quickly. Mm. Yeah, it does. But in terms of like the the. The purple or the lilac flower, I mean, it's stunning. And it also reminds me of, of the jacaranda, which comes out mid-spring. Mm. And if you're lucky enough and live near a, a park or a large estate, they might have done something that was very, very popular about 100 years ago, and they'd plant a jacaranda next to a silky oak, next to, um, what do you call it, the Illawarra flame tree. The flame tree, yes. So you'd have these three trees, huge, magnificent specimens, all coming out in flowers, just sort of one after the other, sometimes at the same time. And, and the golden flowers, the purple flowers and the red ones. And and that's actually a really good design tip too. If you yeah. want to if you want to create a garden that has a, a the appearance of a forever being in flower, you basically pick plants that have distinctly different flowering periods so mm. that as one finishes, it's rolling into the display from the next one. So mm. it's, it's getting you that, that fantastic continuous flowering display. And, of course, that means that you've got lots of food there for all the, the various critters that visit your garden, a lot of those, those beneficial things. But another one is, uh, of course, orchids. Many of the orchids are flowering at this time they of are. year. Yeah, they which are. They look gorgeous. And the beauty of the orchids too, a lot of them you can, in fact, cut some flower spikes and bring them inside and they'll last for months when they're that mm-hmm. fresh. They're mm. absolutely wonderful. Some quick maintenance tips, I guess, are in order. What about what about once things finish flowering? Have you got some tips for the folks out there for what to do? Well, for your bulbs, like especially for your daffodils, um, I wouldn't deadhead them because um, the bulbs will reabsorb all the energy in those in those leaves and stalks, and so wait till they're really really withered before you um, trim them out. Mm, mm. Um, for the other little spring flowering things, just deadheading them so that they will reflower. Lots of water and food every couple of weeks. Well, and that's that's the point too. A lot of these things, if you do give them a light haircut, you can bring on a second round, a round of flowering, which can be uh, extending that flowering period again. But mm. also it's very handy for just keeping things neat and tidy. The, For instance, the uh, Sasankua camellias, they will have all finished by now. Uh, but if you want a good display and nice density from them, you just give them a light haircut with the hedge trimmers and, yes. and you're off. Mm. All that talk of flowers has got me thinking about pollinators. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're an important part of the garden, aren't they? We kind of forget about these little workers that that do their thing in the garden. Oh, it's all not the time. work. It's not work. what flying from flower to flower and having a little munch while yeah, you're but doing it's, it. In terms of the plants, I mean, <laughs> it's pollination is all about sex, isn't it? I know. Yeah, look, let's 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 lay it on the table here. It's about sex. Yeah, it's yeah. reproduction. Just usher the kids off to the other room for a moment. <laughs> I used to have a botany teacher that became very smutty when he was talking about plant sex, and it was always interesting watching a room of trainee horticulturalists become very uncomfortable. <laughs> they didn't, surely. Then they're in the wrong job because that's what plant life is all about. And and all those little pollinators, those birds and bees, I mean, 
that they're the ones that are making it a threesome, which makes it so much more exciting. <laughs> well, that's exactly right because you got you got the the boy part and the girl part of the plant, and then yep. you then you've got the threesome of the pollinator joins Absolutely. in. It can all get a bit crazy out there, and you're just not even realizing it's happening. <laughs> there are an enormous number of pollinators too, aren't there? Oh yeah, We're, look, everyone wants a party. Every, well, that's exactly right. If, if people just think it's bees getting their fun bits, <laughs> but no, it is. It's it's that's lots why of other they things. They talk about the birds and, and the, bees. the bees. It's yes. true. Well, the birds do it too, don't mm-hmm. they? Of course, the birds. The birds, are, birds can be very important pollinators. And bats. And bats. You, you know, that's interesting. I was looking into it because I'd always thought that. I don't know if folks are aware, but there's all different ranges and sizes of bats. And the, the ones that most of us know are the fruit bats, of course, the big mm-hmm. ones, the flying foxes. But there's also a whole range of um, micro bats. And I always thought the micro bats did a bit of pollinating, but it turns out that most of them are actually insectivorous. So the ones that do the, the vast majority of the pollinating are, in fact, the flying foxes, the, those larger bats. Um, but many of them are actually pollen eaters, and it's just by virtue of their activity that they happen to transfer some some pollen around. But you, it's not unusual to see a, a, a almost comical photo of a flying fox with a you know sort of its snout with pollen all up and down the sides of the the fluff on its face. So they they are important. But there's also lots and lots of things like possums and little sugar gliders and um, things like uh, moths and beetles uh, because. Pollination doesn't just happen during the day. That's the that's the other thing too. And another thing, a great pollinator, and um, people don't are aware of that. People think about the beautiful perfume of flowers, but some some flowers absolutely stink. Yeah, some, they, and they rely on the flies. Mm, that's exactly right. They use they use um, blowflies and things by smelling like something that's totally and utterly dead to yes. attract them. But. There's in, in particular, there's some uh, the native crinum lily, the crinum, the swamp lily. Mm-hmm. Um, that tends to in the evening. It has it lets most of its perfume out just around sunset, um, and it is in particular tends to be pollinated by beetles, which is rather strange when you see a beetle burrowing right into the flower. But obviously, it's been attracted by the uh, by the fragrance from the flower. Do you know one of the weirdest ones? And I I totally love this because this is just like evolution. Uh, the ground orchids, some of the Australian native ground orchids, they actually use a process called pseudocopulation to pollinate. Really? Mm-hmm. Tell me. They have evolved to look like basically a lady wasp. And they have markings on the petals that look like a lady wasp. I, I've heard they of this, yeah. They even yeah. mimic the pheromone of the female wasp yes. so that a male wasp can be busy with his girlfriend and smell this orchid and say, wow, that smells so much better. I'm going to go and <laughs> jump on that. And it, it actually took botanists a long time because they were wondering how these things got pollinated and they were wondering what on earth the wasps were doing. But it was actually a process that's now been called pseudocopulation. Divorce rates high amongst those wasps. <laughs> <laughs> but the orchids are doing well. <laughs> <laughs> Producing lots of little baby orchids, I would say. <laughs> I would say they they are indeed. But this is the point, and we we mentioned bees. Bees are a fantastic pollinator. We know about that. And I think a, an important point too is that they say that one third of the food that's on our plates is only there through the entire process of pollination, mm-hmm. which is really it makes you realise the importance of these pollinate, pollinators and the, and the job that they do, the role they do in in creating our food, and. 
the honeybees are conspicuous, but of course there's a whole range of native bees and Australia has an incredible, incredible diversity of Australian native bees. So I thought, let's talk to an expert all about these wonderful Aussie bees. And Sarah Hamilton, she is a native stingless bee specialist who runs a business called Bee Yourself. Sarah, welcome. Hi, Adam. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. Hey, now tell us a little bit about what it is that you do. Well, I am a maliponist, which is a fancy word for someone who keeps Australian stingless bees. Now, meloponist, that's that's one I haven't heard of before. Explain a little bit on that. Sure. Well, it's actually a bit of a made-up word, but it's a word we give ourselves because, as you'll know, European beekeepers are called um, apiarists. Yes. And that actually comes from the species Mellifera apis, um, and melipony is a, the type of stingless bee that I work. Ah, so it's just okay. a bit of a title. Yeah. You know? no, that <laughs> it's makes, a bit fun. We throw it around. Yeah, no, that makes, it actually makes complete sense. Makes complete sense. Oh, there you go. <laughs> And I think that's what's going to come as a surprise to a lot of folks out there because native bees, I was doing a bit of research. I, I ran across a fantastic book that's a field guide to native bees and I was blown away by how many there are. There's there's something like 1,500 named species and they think there could be about 2,000 because nobody's really ever gone out there and, and checked them all. That's exactly right. There's a suspected um, many more than that. They're just not yet named or found. And some of them are just astounding. Like my favourite has been for many, many years is the the blue banded bee. I mean, yes. it's just the most beautiful looking creature. Isn't it's absolutely it gorgeous? incredible. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And everybody out there, you have to look up teddy bear bees. They <laughs> they yeah, are the, exactly the as they thing. sound. Yeah. <laughs> so cute. Yeah, they they probably would. I think if people saw them in the garden, they'd probably mistake them for the the European bumblebee or something. They're they're cute and fuzzy and Very slow similar. moving and yeah yeah. Now many. A stingless, that's, I think, the interesting thing because people are used to the classic, the, the honeybee, and, and you get a honeybee cranky and you get a nice sting as a thank you for it. <laughs> stingless bees, how does, how does that actually work? Yeah, well, given that we have over 2,000 species, actually only 11 of them are what we call a stingless bee. And so bees evolved from wasps. And uh, these stingless bees evolved not to have a stinger as their defence form. Um, so if you were to dissect a little bee, you'd actually still find the, a tiny little stinger in there, but it's redundant and they don't, they don't use it anymore as their defence form. Ah, oh, that's interesting. And I gather too that, that the bees that do sting, the Australian native bees, are not aggressive like the honeybee. They tend to be like they'd really only give you a sting if you pushed them hard and, and gave them yeah, a hard time. They as tend with to be all a bit bees, more, yeah. they're not what I call aggressive, they're what I call defensive. Yeah, yeah. So they just look after themselves. Um, but most Australian bees are actually what we call solitary bees and they live on their own. So the chances of you ever getting stung by one is pretty slim. Pretty slim. And yeah. there's there's some some crazy ones too, like things like carpenter bees and all sorts of things yeah. like that. They're, they're quite fascinating, the range. But the ones you mainly deal with are tiny, 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 tiny little guys, tiny. aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they are often mistaken for flies. They like they look like a little black fly. They're about four to five mil long and they're all black in colour. Yeah, and, and what's the if somebody was to see them moving around their plants, is there a giveaway between them being this, the, the little tiny stingless bee and just another bug, you know, a gnat or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I guess for the untrained eye, it would be a little difficult to know, um, but they definitely, you'll see them moving from flower to flower, whereas if it's a fly, they're not going to be generally doing that. Mm. Their flight pattern's a lot different as well. But um, yeah, just to, for the untrained eye, I guess you'd be looking out for the antennae. 
um, and their little pollen sacs on their legs is yeah, a dead I, giveaway. I, I was just going to say that. I know when I've taken some photos, some macro photos of flowers and they've, they've popped up in the corners, that <laughs> the, the, those little pollen sacs are very distinct and, and they look like little tanks. That's how I always think. They're sort of like these little little armoured cars of, of, of bugs. They're quite amazing. Good description. <laughs> yeah. And they're pollinators, of course. You know, bees are renowned for being pollinators yeah. and they have those pollen sacs. Are they good pollinators of all plants or do they tend to... Like being a native bee, do they prefer native plants or? Yeah, so uh, stingless bees aren't exclusive to native plants. They do um, they do go go to exotics as well as natives. However, having said that, our other native bees, which are many many more, as we said, than the, just the eleven stingless, um, they are exclusive to native plants. So it is really important, not just for our stingless bees, but for all native bees, that we are planting lots of native. Um, plants for them to forage on. Yeah. Okay. So that that's that's a, a great foundation for people. And I think the important thing is too. A lot of people when they think natives, they straight away think oh, grevilleas and banksias. But I know myself in gardens I've designed around our homes, we've had predominantly native plants in them, and people have been surprised when I've said mm. this is a native garden because there are so many native plants out there that Huge are variety. yeah that, that that are quite different from the typical prickly sort of things that people think about. But I know I've I've seen a little stingless. Uh, absolutely having a field day on my citrus, for example. They, they, they go crazy they just for love it, don't them. they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in many ways they're a better pollinator because they are such a small bee, they can get into smaller flowers to do the pollination work that your European bee might not be able to. Mm. Ah, that's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. And, and like, for instance, if somebody had a, a veggie garden, are you going to find that those little stingless guys will be doing the good work around Hard their veggie garden? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll notice an increase in your um, produce like instantly once you get bees, yeah. Yeah, okay. And, and the sort of place that they set up a hive, are we talking, you know, people have those stereotypical images of what a beehive looks like. Where do these little guys set up? A little guy should, shouldn't be sexist. <laughs> guys and girls. Where do they set up? Predominantly where do they girls. Set up? <laughs> where do they set up house? What sort of hives do they do they build? Yeah, so in the wild they'll tend to find an empty cavity um, and that would have looked like a hollowed tree at usually in the wild. However, these days in urban environments, they tend to go for things like water meter boxes um, or your Telstra pits or um, strange odd little um, cavities that they can find and they tend to go for plastic as well. Uh-huh. It tends to offer them a lot of protection. So yeah. um, that's where you might find them in the wild. If you're talking about having a boxed hive, um, it's it's really is just about the size of a small shoebox, mm. and you can place them anywhere in your in your urban yard. Even if you lived on a balcony in a high rise apartment, um, as long as they're well protected from the the sun, mm. um, they can go pretty much anywhere. And that that's one of the things you do with bee yourself, isn't it? You you help people set up hives so they yeah. can, they can actually maintain a population in their own garden and that's and right. yep. add to that po- that pollinator population in the area. The big super sweet question is, do they produce honey? So if, if you if you were to say, can I have a, a native bee, a stingless native bee hive in my house and can I get honey from it? Can you get honey? Now that largely depends on where your bees are and how healthy they are and what they have to forage on. But the, the generalised answer is yes. 
However, it is a very tiny amount of honey. So your European beehive may make anywhere from like 50 kilos to 200 kilos a year, whereas your native hive, you'd be lucky if you got one and a half kilos. Oh, oh, that'd do most Teen, households. Or not in my house. <laughs> but it is very special honey, having said that. The medicinal value far outweighs anything like manuka or anything ah, like that. Interesting. So, yeah, yeah, it is really, apart from being delicious, it is very, very good for you. Tell us a bit more about the health benefits of the the stingless bee honey. Yeah, sure. So European honeybees store their honey in honeycomb, and honeycomb is made up of wax that the bees excrete from their wax glands. However, Australian native bees, they store their honey in sugar bag or honey pots, um, which is made from tree resins and wax. They mix it together to make a substance called propolis, And by the honey being stored in that, it infuses all of the antimicrobial properties of those tree resins and things like that. It starts to absorb in there, giving the um, medicinal rating much higher than any kind of manuka or anything like that. Wow, that's incredible. And what sort of price, like, can you buy um, the native native bee honey? (laughs) You can. It is a little difficult to (laughs) to come by these days. There are a few people who do sell it. However, it does come with a hefty price tag of about $500 a kilo. So how many hives can I fit in my backyard? But <laughs> well, you should see mine. There's at any given point, there's probably about sixty to a hundred, and I'm on a small block. Oh wow! <laughs> well, I've got an acreage, so uh, let's see how many we can fit in there. <laughs> let's talk. <laughs> okay, so now, do you have some tips for us on how folks can make their own garden more bee friendly? Apart from, of course, adding a, a bee box. But uh, <laughs> have you got some tips on how people can be more bee friendly at home? Absolutely, and I think some people out there are going to hate this advice, and some are going to love it. Just maybe do a little bit less maintenance around your yard. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Leave a little patch of weeds and unmowed lawn. Um, Gather up. Anytime I see the fallen sticks and twigs, I just pick them up and I throw them into one corner. And that way I have a corner that's got really healthy ecosystems and lots of wildlife in there and the bees will find those areas to nest and make homes. And obviously, you know, reduction of of, uh, pesticides and herbicides and things is a a critical one. Um, particularly with all of the people have probably heard about the the issues with with bees being impacted globally by some of the the uh, yes. insecticides we've been using. Unfortunately, so. not just bees; it's our waterways, it's our soil, yes. it's our produce. So yeah, it's really important that we start being very mindful about our, not using those pesticides as well, yes. um, and planting more and more native plants. Yes, yeah, the native plants and and those nectar those nectar rich flowering plants as well is is obviously yes. very important for that and, that whole and ones that flower all year round. Um, yes. Because the native bees forage all throughout winter, um, particularly up in Brisbane, like warmer climates up north, uh, they need they need lots to keep them going throughout that whole winter. So mm. flowering all year round plants. Excellent advice. And that sounds like a beautiful garden anyway, doesn't it? It's I not reckon. just the bees are going to enjoy <laughs> that. I reckon all the visitors are too. Well, look, you can find out more about Sarah's awesome work with Be Yourself by visiting beyourself.com.au. And of course, you'll find her on the social platforms. Just uh, search for Be Yourself. Sarah, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. No worries. Gardening by the Moon with Milton Black. Hi, Milton. How are you? Very well, Jenny. And what a beautiful month we have here for gardening. I mean, let's face it, September is the best time to plant and it's the best time to get everything together in your garden. As a matter of fact, September, in my opinion, is the best for feeding, pruning and watering. You know, you've just got to look after your plants 
All right. Well, today the moon is in Libra. It, it came into Libra yesterday on Sunday at eight minutes past nine. So we're, we've got the semi-fertile sign. The moon is on the wax now. It's coming up to the first quarter of the moon on Friday. So today with the moon in Libra, then it slips into uh, Tuesday into Scorpio, which is a very fertile sign as well and stays in there till Wednesday. So from now until Wednesday, people, all above ground plants you put in your garden. So if you want to put your lettuce in, mm -hmm. if you want to put anything that grows above the ground, tomatoes, etc., you start planting today, tomorrow, and Wednesday. Now, this is also excellent for flowers and shrubs, of course, but, but don't forget, this is an excellent month for passion fruit vines, and those are great days, uh -huh. Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, to plant passion fruit vines. Because passion fruit will be popped in now and they'll yeah. be ready over the Christmas New Year period. Whilst you've got the fertile signs, you couldn't wish for a better time to plant passion fruit vines. Also, um, gladiola corms and things like this and dahlia tumors, they can be planted later on in the week, which we'll go into. But all above ground plants. Now, Thursday, the moon's in Sagittarius. So what we do on Thursday is just do a bit of watering, no planting. You can if you want it, but, you know, Sagittarius is a barren sign. So there's no real growth in the moon. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, above ground plants. Thursday, just do a bit of watering. Definitely no planting on Friday because that's the first quarter of the moon in Sagittarius at 1.10 p.m. So Friday, go and do your shopping. Okay. Have a haircut. Go yeah. to the beauty parlor. Do what you like. But get ready. Get ready for Saturday and Sunday and Monday mm -hmm. because the uh, the 7th, 8th and 9th, the moon is going into Capricorn on Saturday, Sunday and Monday. That is a semi-fertile sign. Again, all above ground plants you can put in there, all your veggies. So you can um, put your lettuce in, your celery, your cabbage, your tomatoes, your capsicum, your anything, silver beet, zucchini, anything that grows above the ground, cucumbers, etc. So that's a fabulous week for above ground crops. Now, on the 10th, the moon enters into Aquarius. Now, that's a barren sign, so nothing happens there, just watering. But on the 11th, the moon is still in Aquarius before it pops in to the big fertile sign of Pisces on the 12th. So on the 11th, if you've got a plant there that needs a little bit of transplanting, then rip it up on the 11th and transplant it on the 11th because as the moon moves into the fertile sign of Pisces on the 12th, those roots are going to grab in there and they're going to say, well, you know, I've got some fresh uh, soil, etc., and I'm ready to go. And, and you'd you can put out also, seedlings too, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yes, you can put seedlings out there. Perfect for seedlings. This whole week is absolutely perfect for seedlings if you want to split them up, as long as they're above ground. Don't put carrots in, of course, because mm. uh, that goes in the week after. But anything that grows above the ground and seedlings, etc., right up uh, there on the 11th, 12th, and 13th. Now, on the 14th, the full moon is up there in Pisces at 2.33 p.m. So that's a no-no day. There's no planting. You just, you know, get around, clean up the place a little bit, put your rubbish away. And the moon on uh, Sunday, the 15th, is in Aries. So that's a non-planting day. So you can actually have um, Saturday the 14th and Sunday the 15th, Go to lunch, have a weekend off, Fantastic. or just do a bit of watering during that time. But that's that's how I see the, the gardening at this stage. Now, a little tip to 
for gardeners. Yeah. Don't forget that this time of the year, our best friend that we have in the garden is white vinegar. And uh, put a cup full of white vinegar to one gallon of water and rush around. What's and a do gallon your in, in metrics? Like, I've forgotten. I'm oh. the old school. <laughs> <laughs> That's about five litres, isn't it? Something like that. But anyhow, one big cup of white vinegar to one uh, five litre or gallon of water and run around and do your hydrangeas, your rhododendrons, and your azaleas, they'll love you for it because they like that little bit of acidity in the yeah, in the soil. ground. Yeah. And uh, so that's, that's, that's a very good one for um, those days, particularly on Thursday the 5th when the moon's in Sagittarius and also on the 10th, the moon's in Aquarius. They're dry days, so you don't have anything to, to do but, um, you know, just tidy up a little bit and do those things there. So that's, that's how I see it. Now, just a little bit of superstition here too. Did you know if seeing the sickle of a moon over the right shoulder is good luck. Now, how many people run around with a blinking sickle these days? You know, <laughs> not many at all. One thing, it's barbecue time. You know, this time of the year is beautiful for barbecue. Now, I'm saying this for the guys. Now, listen, men, you guys that are listening to our podcast, I know you sometimes when you're having a beer or two, you're dying to go to the toot. So never, ever urinate while looking at the moon, especially at night time, because that'll bring misfortune. So just remember, if you want to have a little wee, go inside, but don't look at that moon. See you next week. Okay, terrific. Thanks, Milton. Well, that was another great episode, Jen. What do you reckon? Certainly was, Adam. And we'll be back in two weeks' time with more Garden Chat. But in the meantime, where can people find you? Well, the easiest way is to jump onto YouTube and just search Adam Woodhams and they'll find my channel there with all sorts of videos on garden things and DIY and landscape and other odds and ends there. Fantastic. And if you want more garden inspiration before the next episode... Follow us on Instagram. You can find us at BHGAUS. If you enjoyed this episode of Garden Better, then please take a moment to rate and review the show and don't forget to press that big old subscribe button. It's the best way to stay in touch with what we're doing and make sure you keep on top of every single episode. So we'll see you next time, Jen. You bet. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.